depends on it just depends on how many guys. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm so very always very thankful, as uh, you know. I, I say this often from up here. I'm always thankful to be here uh, with, in the gathering with the saints. I, I can't imagine uh, being anywhere else. I can't imagine being anywhere else. As I as I prayed about earlier, I prayed uh, you know the situation in in uh, Ukraine. You know, as the world continues to struggle, I believe that we will see, I think, I think we will witness in our lifetime, I think we're going to witness the critical nature of the church in real time. I just think that we're going to see that played out in real time as uh, the world continues to press in upon us. As we look upon, out on the world, I mean, we see, I mean, we're seeing uh, wars and rumors of wars, yet we know that we must not despair. We are comforted knowing that we are safe, if you will, in the arms of God. We know that. Even Christians who find themselves, even today, with bombs raining down around them, Christians in a war zone are assured of their safety. Maybe not their physical safety, but they're assured of their ultimate safety even as those bombs drop around them. As I prepared for this morning, I was thinking that in these times we we need to refrain from what I call, or what is called, newspaper eschatology. From our limited point of view, or our limited viewpoint, it's difficult for us to understand fully how these current events fit into God's timeline. I'm personally comforted that those Christian brothers who hold completely different views on end times or on eschatology agree on one main thing, and I prayed it. God ultimately wins. God ultimately wins. When all is said and done, Jesus Christ is the victor. I think, I think that is what Bay even said earlier in the, the, the point of the text in Isaiah. Men may make their plans, but according to Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And as you probably know, and I mentioned in, in, in the prayer, Russia and their leader, Vladimir Putin, invaded Ukraine on Thursday morning. This invasion comes on the heels of a Russian military buildup and the last-minute, I'm sure, last-minute diplomatic measures. As I was writing this sermon, a news agency reported that the Russian troops were outside the Ukrainian capital. In the words of the city mayor, the enemy wants to put the capital on its knees and destroy us. I would encourage you to pray for Christians and Christian leaders living in Ukraine and in Russia, I'd also encourage you to pray for our government and our leaders and other leaders around the world that they would, they would uh, deal with Vladimir Putin in the right way, in the correct way, according to righteousness. Here's an excerpt from a letter asking for prayer posted by the Master's Academy International, a ministry of Grace Community Church. I thought it would be good to read an excerpt from it says, we've been in regular communication with our missionaries and teams in Ukraine, and we praise the Lord that they are currently safe and doing well. Please know that they have decided to stay and shepherd their churches through this difficult time. They've told us that it's their sincere privilege to do so as they serve Him. And by God's grace, there are other pastors throughout Ukraine with the same purpose. The Master's Academy International has over 900 graduates scattered across that country from its 30 years of ministry. Think of the army of men who are preaching the gospel because of that ministry. These men now have every opportunity to proclaim Christ to the lost and to share the only hope that is eternal. As we hear and see the cities that are impacted, know that there are faithful ministers and churches who are preaching the good news. I'm thankful as we approach this time of instability, There are men who stand firm in preaching the gospel in a place that so desperately needs it. I'm praying for a bountiful harvest as this storm approaches and passes. I believe that uh, Putin and and the Chinese Communist Party leader Xi, I guess is how you, I think is how you pronounce it, are taking advantage of, I believe they're taking advantage of the destabilization of our society. I think they are sensing weakness in, in our resolve. And therefore, I think they're moving in these directions. And, and 
The truth is, is that the weakness, we've talked about it over and over, the weakness has been deepened. The weakness in our society has been deepened by those who are pushing ungodly agendas that have weakened the family and have marginalized men and male leadership in our society. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, Russia, as you know, has many, many issues, but that particular problem, this, this ungodly agenda of, of the, the, the LBGT plus or whatever you want to call it, Q or whatever it is, they don't have that issue from what I understand. But we do, and it's weakening us. But I've said on many occasions, as Christians, we cannot put our hope in a president can, cannot, even if his name is Trump, Obama, it doesn't matter. We cannot put our hope in a president. We cannot put our hope in an, an elected Congress or the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter how many justices are placed that maybe think the way we do or otherwise. We must place our hope fully upon Christ. I believe we can look back at history to see how Christians have responded to past challenges that are similar. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one example. He shepherded Westminster Chapel in London as the Germans dropped bombs on the city during World War II. Very early in his ministry in London, he was pastoring Westminster Chapel. London suffered tremendously. If you've seen pictures, old pictures, they, they suffered tremendously with the onslaught that left tens of thousands killed and injured. There's a story of Lloyd-Jones that comes from this time. It clearly shows his tenacity and his commitment to the gathering of God's people his un- and his understanding of the importance of the preaching of the Word of God. One Sunday, a bomb fell a short distance, a German bomb fell a short distance while Lloyd-Jones prayed during the service. The, la- the sound was so loud, I mean, it had hit the building across the street, this bomb. The sound was so loud that windows in Westminster Chapel rattled and plaster fell all around. Lloyd-Jones, it is said, paused for merely a moment. Then he continued his prayer. When he had finished praying, a man came up to give announcements. And afterward, that man dusted Lloyd-Jones off, and then Lloyd-Jones preached the Word of God. Literally, as bombs rained down on the city. In a sermon on Romans 1, Lloyd-Jones shared why Hitler at the time, Hitler that, you know, today it's Vladimir Putin, but then it was uh, Adolf Hitler, he, he shared why Hitler didn't worry him. He says, or, or are you, it's a sermon on Romans 1, he said, or are you troubled about the state of the church, the dwindling congregations, the plight of the world, the might of the world, the organization of the world, and all these things? Oh, I say, go back to the Old Testament and take hold of the comfort and consolation of the Scriptures. Or are you troubled by something that has happened in the world today? Then put it in context of the Old Testament. I was never worried for a second about a man named man like Hitler. It was enough for me to read the 37th Psalm, and there I read of a man like him spreading himself like a green bay tree, sort of a colossus, striding the whole earth. But I read on and learned that a day came when a man wanted to go see him and speak with him, and yet he could not find him. He searched everywhere for him. He could not find any advantage. Why? Because God had blown upon him, end quote. Notice Adolf Hitler is not in this world today, correct? Uh, Joseph Stalin does not exist anymore in this world. He exists in eternity, but he doesn't exist here. Beloved, no man, mark this, no man can successfully challenge or thwart the God we serve. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And I believe we will see this truth clearly played out as we approach our study this morning in Jonah. So let me pray, and then we'll get started this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. Lord, we know that Your will cannot be thwarted. No man can plan his way to the top, so to speak. Lord, that we'll all, they will always fall well short. Lord, may we trust in that truth this morning as we embark upon this study of Jonah. In Christ's name, amen. And today, as I've said, we are starting 
a short series from the little book of Jonah in the Old Testament. I was asked this morning how long we were going to be in this study, and if you have been part of my expositions in the New Testament, you know, we were in Ephesians for a couple of years, I think in James for maybe almost two years, so one would expect that potentially that would be the same in Jonah, but but it will not. We will only be here for a few weeks. Now, if you know the story of Jonah, you may be thinking that everything I just said prior to this, I mean, just as an opening, you may think that all those things I said has no connection to this series. After all, it's all about a disobedient prophet swallowed by a big fish, right? Well, you know, it's a, it's a big fish story. I'm sure if you have heard of a, lot of, a big, of a lot of big fish stories in your life, you know, stories about the big one that got away. Now, these stories seem to grow over time, do they not? The, the big one gets bigger and bigger. Nearly every child in church has heard of Jonah's big fish story. The question is, the question we need to answer is, is Jonah an example of the big, big catch that keeps getting bigger? Starting today, I hope my prayer is to give you a fresh view of this old story and trust that you will be amazed at how the account of Jonah fits into God's redemptive plan. I think we're going to see this clearly. That's my hope anyway. And I pray that you will be encouraged by God's handiwork as you view it through the lens of this well-known Bible story. As we approach Jonah, you you should know up front that we will spend much of our time, at least today for sure, setting the biblical and historical context. I will do my best, my prayer is to do my best to ensure that each sermon in this series stands on its own. But I would say, and my encouragement would be, that you listen to all of them to get a full understanding of how this book fits into God's redemptive plan. Now, as for the book of Jonah, we will only consider the first two verses this morning. So I'm, I said earlier, it's not going to be like my New Testament studies, but ultimately, ultimately today, we're just going to study a couple of verses. Uh, but that's going to be okay. Now, let me give you how this series is going to work. We will study Jonah literally as a play, if you will, unfolding before our eyes. Now, as we start, I want to encourage you this. I love this stuff. I love it. And I love seeing all, I love seeing all the connections. But here's the, the struggle in, in a sermon. I fully recognize that I could lose you guys. I fully recognize we could get lost, lost in the trees and forget about the forest. But my prayer as, I, as we go into the study, my prayer is that I can bring the Scripture alive for you. And, and so, please, if you have any questions, uh, stop me later and I will try to answer them. Or I will consider those questions in the, up, in the upcoming weeks. So, today, today, we will start with the prologue. And we are calling that a great sign. We will then go to the opening act a great city, and as this incredible drama unfolds, we will see Act 1, a great storm, Act 2, a great fish, Act 3, a great compassion, or you could say also a great repentance, Act 4, we're going to see a great anger, and the closing act, we're going to see a great harvest. Now with that, let's look at the prologue, Matthew 12, 1 through 45. Now I, I I hope that you don't feel like this is a bait and switch. It's, it's not. It's not a bait and switch, but we will get to Jonah. I promise. But we're going to set the stage this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 12. Now, as you turn there, I want to say that most of us love a great story. Have you ever asked yourself why we are drawn to great writing or great acting or, or what makes a great story? I would offer that a good story usually includes what? Conflict. Conflict. Bible's the, I mean, Bibles. Friends, the, the Bible is full of conflict, and it's full of great drama. And many times, authors, authors will use foreshadowing to set the stage for the upcoming draw, drama. Now, a prologue, this is what we're using this morning, a prologue is defined as an introduction to a book or play Sometimes the prologue foreshadows later events. Keep that in mind. Sometimes the prologue foreshadows later events. In this case, 
you will see that the prologue will help us understand the conclusion of this incredible account of Jonah the prophet. Now, I'm just that's a little bit of a bait right there, but I hope you take it. Now, let me set the context of Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, this chapter records a series of conflicts and drama between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees. Earlier in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, we're not going to read through it, but the Pharisees began to question why Jesus' disciples were picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. So, in other words, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath. That's important for us to understand. In verse 8, though, in verse 8, Jesus clearly declares that he, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. This would be a blasphemous statement if it were not true. If it were untrue, Jesus would be committing blasphemy against God. But in verses 9 and 10, he heals a a, a man's hand. Uh, He he heals this hand and showing that he truly is the Lord of the Sabbath. He gives him a, a sign, if you will. In verses 22 to 29, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. In verses 30 through 32, Jesus rebukes them by, giving the, by stating the unpardonable sin, which is attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. So, by the way, most people, I mean, people who wonder, have I ever committed the unpardonable sin? The answer generally is no, because most of us don't see the work of the Holy Spirit in that way and then attribute it to Satan, which is what the, the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. Now, let's pick up in Matthew 12, 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then he says this, The men of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, it should be clear from this text that this text connects back to the book of Jonah. I mean, because Jesus says the sign of Jonah. And he even gives part of the story, being in the, in the belly of the fish, and the fact that the men of Nineveh have, were, were are repentant at the preaching of Jonah. The question that we must answer is, what is the nature of this connection? Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that they will be given one sign, the sign of Jonah. Now, at this point, I think it would be helpful to define the, the word translated sign. In the words of Eugene Merrill, a commentator on the Old Testament, but he also wrote a paper on the sign of Jonah, he says that a sign is a miraculous act produced to authenticate its agent and to induce faith in God on the part of the observer. Now, earlier in chapter 12, Jesus had authenticated his authority as the Lord of the Sabbath by healing this man's hand, correct? Now, we know also from Matthew 7, 28 through 29 that Jesus' teaching had authoritative weight as well. So uh, that in Matthew 7, 28, 29, it says when Jesus had finished preaching, that would be the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Yet the Pharisees and scribes had, had seen all of these things, They had seen his miracles, they had heard his teaching, and they asked for a further sign, obviously with evil intentions. We see that from from Jesus' response. Their, Their motives were evil. So, what is this sign of Jonah? So, what is it? Well, I would argue the answer to that question unlocks the meaning and the purpose of the book of Jonah. I really don't like to leave you hanging. In some ways, I do because I, like I like to spring things on you. But we will spend the rest of this series answering that question. So what is this sign of Jonah? Now, before we leave Matthew chapter 12, 
I want to point out one other thing. I have titled this series, Jonah, A Big Fish Story, question mark. In the title and in my intro, I pose the question, is this just a big fish story? Well, clearly Jesus' response here shows that that's not the case. That's not the case. Based on Jesus' reference to this book, I would argue that it plays a huge role in understanding God's redemptive work. Or said another way, understanding God's redemptive plan. Because of how this book connects back to the Old Testament, or from the Old Testament, back further into the Old Testament, we're going to see that, and forward to the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. Now with that, I hope I've baited the hook. I pray that you will take the bait. Now turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. I'll read the text, just the first two verses, and then we'll look at the opening act in this grand play. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Now, for us to understand the book of Jonah, I would argue that we need to understand the historical context. Now, before we begin to look at that, I want you to notice in your text. Notice it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, here we should recognize that God came to Jonah in some form to give him a command. Now, we can presume that God gave him a message, and that becomes very important later as we keep going into this, into this study. But for now, I want to make a few remarks regarding this, this phrase, the word of the Lord came. Obviously, we should understand that God is communicating a message to Jonah the prophet in this context. So God has a message. But I don't think that we should miss the personification in this verse. In John 1, 1 and 2, John tells us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we see the Word of God came to Jonah and John equates the Word of God with the second person of the Trinity. In John 1, 14, John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Revelation 19, 13, John describes Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Word. He describes Him as this. He said He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Word of the Lord, or the Word of Yahweh, is none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, this message carries the very authority of Christ, or said another way, the very authority of God. The prophet Jonah then. Now notice that, that the prophet Jonah, uh, he came to the prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, we don't know much about this man. Uh, Jonah was a prophet from the northern tribe of Israel. I think that's important, an important distinction. He may have been from the tribe of Zebulun. We know that he was a native of Gath-Hefer, which was a small village about three miles northeast of Nazareth in northern Israel. From Scripture, we know that he gave prophetic words of instruction to Jeroboam II. Uh, In that passage, 2 Kings 14, 23-25, it says that in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam became the son, uh, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Israel became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. Now, That's important for us to note that he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. Now, this text would then date Jonah's ministry to about the 8th century B.C. Now, considering this, considering all these things, considering that text, 
the book of Jonah becomes the best known, uh, is the best known to us in terms of him as a, as a person. Uh, that's really the most that we know about him. On a side note, the Pharisees claimed that no prophet had arisen out of Galilee, yet they were wrong because Jonah was a Galilean. That's in John 7.52. Now, also, I think it's worth saying, the Jewish rabbis speculate that Jonah is the unnamed son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, but that we can't verify. Now, we know that Jonah's name means dove. As you know, doves are associated with peace since they are basically harmless birds. It's interesting, though, that and funny, funny enough that the prophet Hosea associates them with silliness, uh, having, having no sense. He says that in, in Hosea 7.11, that Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. Now, truthfully, if we look at this, we see this quality in Jonah, in Jonah as the book progresses. He's a, a silly man because he knows that God cannot be thwarted. I mean, we've talked about this this morning. God's plan can't be thwarted, yet Jonah tries over and over and over to go against God's will. Now, the text says that this is that Jonah is the son of Amittai, and we don't know anything about Jonah's father except that his name means truth. Now, as I said earlier, extra-biblical sources tie him to the widow Zarephath, but we again, we don't know that. But we but it, basically, you could say that Jonah's name means, well, it's, jo- it's Jonah, the son of truth, but ultimately, I don't think you can push that that far. But here's what we do know about Jonah. This is the, the main things we need to get. He was a prophet from the northern kingdom, and he lived in the 8th century B.C. during the reign of Jeroboam. Now, we know from Scripture that the ten northern tribes split from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin after Solomon died. So under Solomon's son, there was this split. Now, during Jeroboam II's reign, Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, was at relative peace with its neighbors, Syria and Assyria. Now, both of those nations during this time were weak. And Jeroboam II took advantage of this by enlarging the northern borders to where they were in the time of David and Solomon. Now, we've already read that. Uh, you can read it in 2 Kings 14, 23-27. But what we need to understand, so Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years. Now, during that time, uh, the nation also enjoyed relative prosperity. But what we need to recognize is that it was also, so they were, they were basically a time of peace, a time of prosperity, but it was a time of great spiritual bankruptcy. They were just going through the motions, motions without any life in their worship, and they were becoming increasingly idolatrous. As a result, we know that from further revelation, we know that God will judge them for their faithlessness. We know that just a few years later in 722 B.C. that God will use Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom and to take them into captivity. Now, their poor spiritual state and God's upcoming judgment forms the backdrop for Jonah's story. Now, remember that. So basically, they're in a poor spiritual position and God is going to judge them. And so that forms the backdrop to this entire story. Now, at this point, we need to go back into Israel's history to better understand their situation and Jonah's actions as this story progresses. Now, if you turn back to Obadiah. Now, it's gonna, this is going to be a quick stop, a very quick stop. Obadiah, as my former pastor used to say, is in the crinkly part of your Bible, you know, the part that you don't go to very, very often. I hope that's not true of you. It's after Isaiah and Ezekiel and between Amos and Jonah. Despite its position in your Bible, the prophet Obadiah may have been the first of the minor prophets. He lived after the kingdom split, so the, the kingdom is split, and he is from, he is actually from the southern kingdom. Now, in his writings, he prophesied specifically against the Edomites who ascended from Esau. So you had Jacob and Esau, 
And then you have the Edomites that descended from Esau. Now, in Obadiah 1.10, he says that Edom would be cut off forever because of their violence against their brother Jacob, who is also called Israel. So, in Obadiah 1.10, it says, Because of your violence, of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever. So this is a prophecy by Obadiah against the nation of Edom. Now, Obadiah also is the first prophet to mention an event called the Day of the Lord. Now, that's, this is a very important concept as we consider the book of Jonah. And in, Jonah, or in Obadiah 1.15, it says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your head. So Obadiah is a prophet from the southern kingdom of, southern kingdom of Judah. And so he's now prophesying that this day of the Lord will be, is near upon all nations. Now, he is still speaking to Edom. But now he shifts gears to say that all nations will endure the day of the Lord. According to Obadiah, the day of the Lord will be a time of judgment upon the nations. Now, what we need to be clear on is this is the goim in Hebrew. So that's basically the Gentiles. Now, he prophesies that God will judge the nations and deliver the sons of Israel. That's important. In other words, in the words of Velo, the Gentile scum is going to get what's coming to them. Pretty cool stuff if you're an Israelite, right? From Obadiah, they expect God to exercise judgment on the nations. And you know, they will, the nations will answer for their actions. God will avenge the evil they've done. But there's one small problem. Well, it's a fairly significant problem if you're Israel. Turn back a few pages to the book of Joel. There's Amos, and then, so turn to your left, there's Amos, and then, then there's Joel. Now, Joel, some people believe that Joel was a contemporary of Obadiah. Some date Joel's writing before Obadiah, but I lean toward Obadiah coming before Joel. Now, that's, there's different opinions on that. Good men go either way, and I think you can make an argument either way. But I would argue that Joel expands upon Obadiah. And I would say that, that as you look at, as the, as the, the prophecies uh, go forward, what you'll find is, is that Obadiah, I believe, is the source material for, for a lot of other people, as they, especially as they prophesy about the day of the Lord. Now, Joel was probably written during the, the reign of Joash. And in Joel chapter 1, if you're there, he describes this great locust plague. This is a complete disaster for the nation. These locusts have literally, quite literally, wiped out everything. It truly, if you were there, it would truly feel like God's judgment. Now, you might call this locust plague during this day a contemporary, meaning that day, a contemporary day of the Lord. This locust plague leads to drought and to starvation. Now, in Joel 1.14, Joel exhorts the people to rightly respond to this dire situation. He says in Joel 1.14, Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So they're going through this judgment, what feels like a judgment because of what's going on. These locusts have eaten everything and, and they're starving. And Joel says, cry out to the Lord. If you look in verse 15, he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction upon the, or from the Almighty. Now, putting Joel and Obadiah together, I would argue that Joel is pointing forward to a coming period when God will, will pour out his judgment. Therefore, I would argue that he is using eschatology or that he is using end times theology, if you will, to warn the people of God's coming judgment. In effect, you may think, uh, in effect, he's saying, you may think this is bad, but it's going to be much worse in that future time. Now, this locust plague in, in his day has demonstrated God's power and his judgment, his wrath, if you will, to Israel. 
Therefore, Joel is arguing for them to repent because it's going to get much, much worse. Now, starting in Joel 2, he begins to give a description of this future upcoming day of the Lord. Now, in this passage, he clearly explains this coming day of judgment. And this is something that is far beyond the current judgment that they feel like that they're experiencing. Now, look down in Joel 2.11. In Joel 2.11, it says, Yahweh utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And listen to this, and who can endure it? So we're talking about a major issue here. We're talking about a major event. And the answer, of course, is no one can endure that coming day unless the Lord delivers them. Now look at verse 12. I want you to make special note of these verses because they are profoundly connected to Jonah. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. So even amid God's terrifying judgment, He gives them the opportunity to return to Him. And the question is, who is He talking to? Well, in the, the, the context, he's, I believe He's talking to His people. Look down at, at verse 15 quickly. He says, blow a horn in Zion, consecrate a, a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. So He's talking to His people in Zion. Now back in 2.12, I want you to notice they were to, are to return with what? Notice, with all their heart, right? He doesn't want the, just the external trappings. Yes, he's asked for them to fast and to return in a solemn assembly, but ultimately he wants their hearts. Look at Joel 2.13 and 14. And rend your heart, not your garments. And now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now ultimately, ultimately God, Joel is saying that God will respond to true repentance because he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Now, here's the question. He's talking to his people. He's talking to his people, but who, who all does that apply to? Now, I would argue this is an allusion back to Exodus 34, 6. And I think it's profitable to take a moment to consider the context of Exodus 34. But before we do, I want to pose a quick question. Early, earlier I said there's a problem. What does this prophecy presuppose? Remember, Obadiah said that God would judge the nations during the day of the Lord. Now Joel says to God's people, you will have to endure the day of the Lord as well. But, I mean, why else would he say, repent? Now, turn to Exodus 34. Again, I, this is not a bait and switch. This, is all, this all leads up to Jonah. So stay with me, please. I get it. My wife always says, I mean, when you, get, when, you, when you preach a sermon and you preach a text, you need to stay in the text, and she's right. But sometimes, just sometimes, you have to really give a lot of background, and so that's what we're doing. Now, considering this, I, I think that Joel's allusion to Exodus 34 is significant. Now, you may recall, if you've read through that, I think we've read through it in our reading <clears throat> recently, you may recall that in Exodus 32, Israel makes a golden calf. And in Exodus, so in Exodus 20, God had given His law to the people. And in Exodus 21 through 23, Moses explained the implication of the law. In other words, Moses applied the law. In Exodus 24, 3, the people agreed to obey the law. It says, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, and all the ordinances, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
Now, chapters 25 through 31 give details of the tabernacle and the priesthood, and all of that occurred within a 40-day period. Now, that, that's actually with Moses up on the mountain with God. Now, therefore, therefore, within 40 days, the people disobey God and break the covenant by worshiping the golden calf. Just listen to Exodus 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Then God said in Exodus 32, 9 and 10, he says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone, and that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. And, and I will make you a great nation. Basically, God is saying, they have sinned, they have disobeyed, they said they wouldn't, they did, they must die. You die. Yet, Moses intercedes for them. In, in Exodus 31, 11, 32, 11, Moses intercedes and says, O oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now, you may recall that after this, Moses returned from the mountain and saw what the people had done, and he got really, really angry. He destroyed, he took the golden calf and he crushed it up and made them drink it, I think, and then he destroyed the original tablets with the, with the law, and he ended up killing, a, and God ended up killing a bunch of them, and it's kind of how the story goes. It's pretty, it's pretty gruesome. But then in Exodus 33, Moses intercedes again for the people. He says, now therefore I pray you, if, you have found, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too, consider too that this nation is your people. That's an important statement. That's Exodus 33, 13. And Exodus 33, 16 says, For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? This is Moses speaking. And your people, is it not by, by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon, upon the face of the earth? Again, we see Moses interceding for the people. Then in 33, 17 and 18, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray then, I pray you, you show me your glory. Now in Exodus 34, the tablets are replaced. And in Exodus 34, 6, it says, now so remember Moses is asked to see God's glory. And, and God said, well, you can see my back. I'll put you in this cleft of the rock. You can see my back. And so the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means mean, leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Then in 34.9, Moses says, he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and part obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Very important. Very important. Then after these events, later in, in Exodus 35, God renews the covenant with the people. So the people had sinned grievously, yet God showed compassion, and now He's renewing the covenant. In other words, God remained covenantly, covenantly faithful to them, despite their grave disobedience. Now, this shows that God always accepts true repentance. His character is indicative of a God who is patient, a God who shows loving kindness. In this case, God even intervened against himself. He's the one who said they need to die. Now, let me remind you that Joel alludes to this episode as he explains the day of the Lord. He is saying, if we repent, God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In other words, if we repent, he will forgive our sins. 
true repentance from the heart. Now, go back to Joel chapter 2. So the day of the Lord will come. Israel will endure it with the nations. Look down at 2.17. It says, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. That's, that should, by the way, by the way, that should ring in your ears. What did, what did Moses say? I mean, he took them out of Egypt, and now you're going to let them go or kill them? I mean, what are the, what are the people going to, what are the nations going to say? So, look at 2.18. Well, look at the rest of 2.17. Why they among the people's... Why should they among the people say, where is their God? So the, the nations will, will mock Israel because they are enduring God's judgment. That's the point. Now look at 2.18. At that point, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And, and the rest of Joel 2 then explains the full restoration of God's people. Now, as we progress in this series, we will return to Joel 2, because there's an important connection to the New Testament, which also connects back to Jonah. I mean, and if you haven't picked, if you haven't picked up on what's going on here, what I'm, trying to, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is show you how Jonah fits into God's redemptive plan. So that when we get to the end of Jonah, we understand that weird ending, right? That's what I want you to see, is I want you to see why there's this weird ending and what God really plans as it goes forward. But for now, I want to ask you one question. Why is Israel in that predicament in the first place? Why did they get in that predicament? Why, why are they facing this coming judgment? Now, the short answer is their continual disobedience. But turn to uh, Deuteronomy 4. And I again, I, I feel bad in some ways because I, I have you guys going everywhere, but that's okay. Just stick with me, please. In Deuteronomy 4, this is Moses preaching to the nation just as they were getting ready to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy 4, 23-25, listen as I read. It says, so watch yourselves. Again, he's speaking to the people of Israel. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you. Now, what is that covenant he's talking about? The Mosaic Covenant is the covenant that he, we just talked about in Exodus 34. So that's the covenant he's talking about. So he says, watch yourself, don't forget that covenant. You, you said you would obey. But then he says that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord God which he made with you and make for, your, make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. you know, kind of like the golden calf. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. Then he says this, when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. Now I want you to notice that Moses is very, very clear, very clear, very straightforward. They will remain in the land a long time, but they will act corruptly. And they will do evil in the sight of the Lord. And he will be provoked to anger. Now, this should remind you of the episode with the golden calf again. Now, keep going. He says in, in verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it but you will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, 
the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now, Moses is prophesying very clearly that they will be scattered among the nations for their disobedience. Look back at your text in verse 29. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now that should remind you of Joel chapter 2, right? Now look at verse 30. When you are, these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. That's very important. And by the way, he's alluding back to the golden calf incident and to Exodus 34, 6, is he not? Now, turn forward to Deuteronomy 30 real quick. Deuteronomy 30, so it shall be, verse 1, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the people's where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. So according to Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30, Israel will disobey, and they will be banished from the land. And after, the, after a period, during the, the latter days, they will be restored. Okay, did, y'all, did y'all get all that? Specifically, they will be restored during the day of the Lord. That's Joel chapter 2. God will remember his covenant, and he will bring them back into a relationship with him. Now, you may ask what this has to do with the study of Jonah. Well, as it turns out, this background helps us understand Jonah's actions. With that, turn to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So let's set this entire context. Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom. According to the prophet Joel, they have endured God's judgment with they've endured this God's judgment with this locust plague. And if they don't repent, they face greater judgment and exile along with the southern kingdom. And just like Moses, because of their lack of repentance, because of their disobedience, they are facing being scattered among the nations. Now, we know from later revelation, and we talked about it earlier, that this would happen in 722 BC at the hands of the Assyrians. So now look at Jonah 1-2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, this irony, there's an irony here that we shouldn't miss. Nineveh, the great city, is Assyrian. We shouldn't, this shouldn't be lost on us that God calls Jonah to go to the wicked nation that he is going to use later to scatter the northern kingdom of Israel. Now notice the text says that their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, this is a wicked, wicked, wicked nation. How eager, the question is how eager do you think Jonah is to go to Nineveh for any reason? How eager would you be to go there? Now look back at the first two verses. What is missing? What is missing? What was Jonah supposed to say? What's he supposed to say to them? It says that Jonah is to cry against the city, but it doesn't tell us what he is to say to them. Now, next week we're going to see the incredible significance of this question. It's, it's incredibly significant that 
later in Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, we see that there's a message. But the question is, what is the message from Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God wants to cry against Jonah to cry against this city? In the meantime, I want to draw your attention back to Exodus 34, 6. <clears throat> Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps His loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Beloved, there's a great promise here for us. We serve a compassionate and gracious God. We serve a God that keeps His promises. He has shown us His compassion and His his grace. And He's shown that throughout time. He is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He loves His people even when we have sinned against Him. He only asks that we confess and turn our hearts to Him, does He not? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a believer here today, He has shown you great mercy in saving you from your sins. He has saved you by His grace through faith. And it is that gift of salvation that you and I could not earn. If you've If you're here today and you would not turn to Him in saving faith, I want to draw your attention to the next phrase in Exodus 34.7. It says, He he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. If you're here today and you don't know Him, do not be fooled. God will judge you and He will punish you for your sin. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are, find yourself outside of Him today, you will stand before God to be judged for every sin you have committed, known and unknown. Because He knows every one of them. He knows every one of them. You are not hiding from Him. But there is a solution. Turn from your sins and come to Christ where you will find compassion, where you will find rest, you will find forgiveness of your your sins. Come now and don't delay. Don't try to reform yourself. Just come to Christ. I'll close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. And the gospel will receive you into its halls if you come as a sinner, but not else. Wait not for reformation. Become at once for salvation. God justifies the ungodly, and that takes you up where you, are, where you now are, and it meets you in your worst estate. End quote. Come now. Come now. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, we... This first sermon, I know, has a feeling of incompleteness. It's hanging in the air that it feels incomplete. Or we know, as we read through the book of Jonah, that it ends and it feels incomplete. There's a tension there. Lord, I pray that through this series that we would be able to understand, better understand why that is the case. Father, we're so thankful for the truths that we've seen today, that you are a God who is full of compassion, that you are abounding in loving kindness and truth. Father, you are a God who we can trust. If nothing else comes from this sermon this morning, may we take that truth, may that truth be driven deep within us, Father, but it also says that you will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. May we see that even today as we progress in this series. May we see the truth of that statement. But also, if anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, if they 
I pray that you would impress upon them the power of your Holy Spirit, that the truth of this statement, that they are guilty. They are guilty. And yet in Christ, the gavel will fall and we will be found not guilty. In Christ's name, amen.